But I'm going to ask you to take God's word in your hands and turn to the book of Genesis. If you have a hard time finding Bible passages, I'm going to make it really easy for you. Turn in your Bibles to page 1. To page 1. If you have trouble, you should be embarrassed by asking where to find page 1 in your Bibles. And then grab that sermon insert sheet. And I'm going to scare you because I've got six points this morning. So I'll have you out uh, before the NBA Finals game later tonight. So we should uh, uh, be ready to go. But I want to uh, continue our series that, that we have entitled Relationships. And the main point of our series, as we have talked about um, throughout this time, is that relationships are vitally important to us as human beings. It has been said that life is all about relationships. And you can determine how good of a life you have looking at the relationships that you have as a human being. For those who maybe are struggling today in life, I'm going to say that there's a good chance that there's a relationship struggle going on, whether it's in your marriage or with your kids or at the workplace or or in your neighborhood. There is uh, a great correlation between our joy in life and our relationships. And in this series, we've been wanting to learn what does God's word have to say on the subject of relationships. And we've been focusing in on some different relationships. And we're doing it a little differently because we're doing more topical, where our focus usually is taking a, a passage of scripture, working verse by verse through that passage, and understanding and gleaning what God's word has to say. We've assigned some topics and we're looking at each of those topics, whether marriage or the family, our relationship in the workplace, uh, how do we deal with broken relationships. Uh, we want to deal with all of these different subject matters because we want to know what God's word has to say because we want to live right in God's eyes and also into the eyes of the people we are around. But where does one go to understand relationships? Where does one find a model relationship? Let's be honest, even the best of relationships is flawed. There's tension, there's struggle. While I've got a wonderful marriage and a wonderful relationship with my kids, I've got to be honest with you, if you were to come and watch the Vidals, you would see tension and struggle and even strife amongst us. And so we have to ask the question this morning, where does one go to find true and lasting relationships? For many of us, we will seek out books and conferences and all manner of speakers to try to find out where good relationships, successful relationships can be found. And while they can help a great deal in it, just as we've learned with all other manners of life, we need God to speak into our life. We need God's word to direct us, to convict us of our sin and our shortcomings, faults and failures, and to turn to him as the example of how we ought to live. And so, for many of us this morning, we desire healthy and lasting relationships. And what we will normally do is we'll go find someone who's a great model of that. A marriage relationship, we'll find some old couple married 75 years, and we'll get them together around their anniversary cake and say, what is the secret to a lasting marriage? For those that are raising kids, we go with great admiration to those who have raised godly kids and say, what's the secret to godly parenting? What's the secret to make sure that the kids... Uh, live the way they should when they leave the home. We go to people who have successful careers and we say, what's the secret? And I'm here to tell you this morning that when it comes to relationships, the secret is found in God himself. When we put this series together, uh, one of the ones, areas that we wanted to focus in on was how does God relate? How does God relate with himself? 
Now, that seems weird, and it seems like something we wouldn't talk about because we recognize how we relate with others, how we relate with our kids, our family, our coworkers, our neighbors, and our friends. But how does God relate to himself as he lives out all of eternity, both past, present, and future, in a complete community called the Trinity? This morning, I want to do what has already been articulated is a very difficult task, getting into the heart and mind of who God is. And that's not always easy. As was shared, you can only go about five words before you enter into heresy. That's a true statement. Because I've learned as I've already dealt with this passage how difficult it is to speak about who God is and not speak in error. But that's what I want to do this morning. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 1 this morning, starting in verse 26. Let me read that for us, and then we'll apply what we read from there to our lives. Here's what God said. He said, then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image in the likeness, or I'm sorry, in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let me pray. Father God, as we read your word and as we now uh, dig into it and try to apply it to our lives, I pray that you would speak not only to the preacher but to the congregation that we may walk away uh, transformed and more renewed in your likeness for your glory's sake. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning on this subject of Trinity, this message is going to be a little different. It's a little different because we're going to take one passage of Scripture and try to apply one principle, who God is and how he relates to himself in Trinity and how to apply that to our lives. And that's what my goal is this morning. But before I do that, I want us to go back to Theology 101 for a moment and be reminded who our God is. In Genesis chapter 6... Uh, verse 4, we are told something that we must hold true as believers and followers of Yahweh, of God Jehovah. In Deuteronomy 6, 4, Moses articulates to the children of Israel this incredible statement called the Shema. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I want you to listen this morning because unlike every other world religion, we believe in a singular God, a God who reigns supreme, a God who oversees all of the universe, both seen and unseen. We do not believe in a God who oversees one quadrant of the globe. We don't believe in a God who oversees one season of time. We don't believe in a God who has one element of oversight. We believe in one God who reigns supreme over all. He is a self-existent God. He is a God who has no beginning and no end. He is the God who rules and reigns over all of creation, not parts of it. And he is the one who created by the power of his word all that we see and know of in this universe. He is the one who is revealed by Moses in Genesis 1-1 in the beginning God. Now, we could stop there and spend an eternity trying to understand what that phrase means. That before the creation of time and creation of space, there was God. He always has been. He always will be. 
Yet in the scriptures, as we declare and worship that one true supreme God, the scripture tells us that we understand God as one who exists as three persons. The Bible says that we believe in a God who is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in these persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, while still being one God, they exist in three persons who are equal and always have been and always will be God. That means the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all equal in God. Well, there's no verse in all of Scripture that, that would say, by the way, here's the Trinity. In fact, the word Trinity is never found in our Holy Scriptures. Scripture makes it clear that when speaking of God, God is one, and yet it attributes to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit the attributes of deity, the name of God. Let me explain. First of all, speaking of the Father, we know the Father is called God over and over again. Cults have no issue with that. But then it comes to the question about what about Jesus? What about the Holy Spirit? This last week on Thursday, I was in the conference room at the Sure Grove campus, and our secretary answered a phone call from a man named Nelson. And the, que the, the question he had was, can I speak to a pastor for a moment? I have a question about the Bible. So she came into the office where Keith and uh, Pastor Steve and myself were, and I said, I, I'll volunteer to take the call, thinking it would just be a simple question. Well, Nelson got on the phone, and instead of asking a question, began to rail about this very sermon I preached in Sugar Grove. It didn't take very long for me to find out that he wasn't from the area, that he didn't have a question. He was from the headquarters of the Watchtower Ministry in New York City of the Jehovah's Witness. And he had all kinds of issues, all kinds of struggles. How can you be so ignorant of the scriptures, he says. Don't you know there's only one God? Never in the Bible does it say that Jesus is God. Never in the Bible does it say the Holy Spirit's God. And then I begin to ask these questions. You say, quit changing the subject. And I said, okay. Here's why we believe Jesus is God. Because Jesus did things that no human being's ever done, right? And because of that, we recognize that Jesus was, in fact, as John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, what's that word? John 1, 14 tells us the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, okay? So right away, we see John, one of the closest disciples, say, this Jesus, whom I walked and talked with, who I watched die on the cross, who I saw resurrected from the grave... He, in fact, is God. Now, you would say, okay, well, maybe we didn't get the translation right, as Jehovah's Witness would tell us. Well, what about the phrase in John chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus is resurrected. I shared this with, with my friend Nelson on the telephone. Thomas comes into the upper room. Remember, Thomas hasn't seen the resurrected Christ. Thomas, a good Jew. The last thing that a good Jew would do, because he would break the Ten Commandments, is bow down and worship Anybody else but God. That was a capital, capital crime, blaspheming, okay? The person of God. And what happens when Thomas comes into the upper room? He falls to his feet and he says to Jesus, my Savior, my Lord. Now Jesus and the disciples being good, godly uh, Jewish individuals would have stopped and said, no, only God is to be worshipped. How dare you get on your hands and knees and worship the person of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is God. And we can go over it over and over again. Every one of the New Testament writers puts in a triad that we pray in the name of God our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, always together, and then with the Holy Spirit. Notice, when it comes to the Spirit, how do we know the Spirit is God? We are told that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. That means he is all places at all times. He is all-knowing and all-powerful. The only one we can attribute that kind of attribute to is to God himself. And yet the scriptures over and over again say he does these things. So we believe as a church in one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's how our doctrinal statement articulates it uh, in our Constitution. Uh, There's only one living and true God who is a spiritual and personal being. He is the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. His plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. He is infinite in holiness, love, and all other perfections. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, and present everywhere. His knowledge is perfect and extends to all things, past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. To him we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. The eternal and unchanging triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. I put in your bulletin a sheet of paper that I got from a man by the name of Tim Tim Challies. And I just want you to have this. Take some time, look over it, walk it through with your kids. Uh, It just tells us and reminds us what we can and cannot believe about God and the Trinity, how we can fall into heresies. I have heard so many illustrations used of the Trinity, and most of them lead you to heresy. Things like Jesus being, or the Trinity being like the sun, or being like water. Uh, This graph will help you to explain why those things fall short in articulating the truth of the Trinity. Now, what are we to learn about the Trinity? If God, in fact, exists as three persons, then the issue of relationships within the Godhead is imperative for us to understand. If God is our creator and he created us while himself being in community, having relationships with the other persons of the Trinity, then wouldn't it be wise for us to look to the scriptures to try to understand how God relates with himself? To ask the question, how do these persons interact with one another? How do they experience community? How do they communicate with one another? How do they deal with their differences? How do they stay united in their purposes and plans? You see, the secret to healthy relationships is found in the only relationship that is entirely and utterly perfect in all ways. So we've got to look at their example and then apply the example of the Godhead to our marriages, to our relationship with our kids and our parents, to the workplace, to even strangers. So how do we do it? When we look to the Trinity, I want you to notice six things. Number one, that when we look to the Trinity, we recognize that the human design is one of immense complexity. The human design is one of immense complexity. Any husband who has lived with his wife for any amount of time knows that to be true. The human being is a complex person. I've been around my wife now for over 20 years, and she's a complex individual. And, And guys, here's a light bulb understanding for you. So are you. We are complex creatures. Now notice what what Moses tells us. 
in the creation experience, it says, let us, that's God speaking, make man in our own image. Let's stop there. Inherent with that verse is a clear understanding that God is having a conversation with himself. He says in the plural, let us make man in our own image. He's not talking to himself. He's talking within the community of the Trinity. Now notice what he says. He wants to make man in his own image and likeness. Humanity is the crowning achievement of God's creation. God had created a lot up to that point, but nothing compares to what he created when he created man and woman. Now what he's created, he says, is in the image and likeness of God. What does that mean? Do we look like God? Do we sound like God? Do we act like God? Verse 26 and 27 declares that when God created mankind, both male and female, in their likeness, the idea here is that we were created with a unique and special dignity that God gives. Unlike all plant life, all animal life, God has created mankind to be different. To be different, to be like him. Well, what does that look like? I want you to notice a couple things that make us like God. First of all, when we talk about being made in the image of God, we are, in fact, very complex creatures. And what that means, first of all, is we're emotional. Like God, we experience a variety of emotions. I've got a dog at home, Wrigley, wonderful dog. And Wrigley has a couple emotions, happy and sad, right? I can have communication with Wrigley. There are three things Wrigley tells me, when to eat, when to go outside, and when to play. There's not much to Wrigley. I can spend just a moment with my dog and recognize the fullness of who my dog is and what he's all about. That is not true for us as human beings. We have a spectrum of emotions. And when we deal with other people, we've got to recognize that there is complexity to all of what we are and who we are. Now, before the fall, man and woman uh, lived in a beautiful picture of that complexity. There were no issues. There were no struggles. They were able to be known and be fully known by one another. But when sin entered the world, those complexities, once being a blessing, now became a curse. Instead of being a kaleidoscope filled with all kinds of colors, it became an issue that complicated our lives and complicated relationships. Here's why relationships are so hard. You are trying to relate to a very complicated person. You don't understand them. They have different ideas and different thoughts. You and them don't think the same way. You don't see things the same way. And as a result of that, you find yourself struggling with strife and disorder instead of what God wanted. We're emotional creatures. Number two, God created us to be intellectual beings. What that means is like God, you and I are thinkers. We think. We reason. And since the beginning of time, God has given us a mind to use our mind in regards to relationship with one another. Like God, we are able to have secrets to reveal ourselves to some in some ways and in others other ways. In fact, in Deuteronomy 29, 29, Moses says this about God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So God says, listen, I have some things you'll never know about me. I'm going to keep them to myself. Why? Because I have that privilege of keeping things to myself. 
but I'm going to reveal a whole bunch of things to you, and those things you will know about me will help you to relate to me in very different and many different ways. And yet, as human beings, we have the same ability. We have the ability to reveal ourselves to a great number of people or to keep those things to ourselves. There are things my wife knows about me that you don't. Those things will remain between her and I. There are things my children know about me that will hopefully, if they don't have too big of mouths, will stay between us. I reveal myself to a great number of people in a variety of ways. Why? Because I'm an image bearer. God reveals himself in many different ways. God revealed himself uh, to the persons of the Trinity in a complete way. That the Son knows all about the Father. The Holy Spirit knows all about the Son. God revealed himself to the angels in a way that he didn't reveal himself to us. God revealed himself to Adam in a way he didn't reveal himself to us. God relates to the apostles and the prophets differently than he revealed himself to us. God reveals, listen, to the believers differently than he does the unbelievers. And you see, God reveals certain things, not all of who he is, but parts of who he is, because he wants us to understand he is a God who has certain attributes and complexities to him. Just like God, we too can reveal ourselves to any manner of people. We can choose to not do so. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says this about us as human beings. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is within them? Listen, one of the things the devil wants you to do is to be unlike God and not reveal yourself to other people. God wants you, or I'm sorry, the devil wants you to live in isolation uh, away from all community. Why? Because when in isolation you keep things to yourself, and there are some of you that are married to people you don't even know this morning. Because we keep secrets from one another. Recognize in Genesis chapter uh, 3 what takes place after the fall. Man and woman fall to sin, and sin enters into uh, the human race. And what does man and woman do? They start covering themselves. They start keeping secrets from one another. Instead of being fully revealed one to another, they begin to hide themselves and help to try to deceive one another from knowing all of who we are. God desires for us to have real and true relationships revealing who we are. Now, we need to be careful with that. At the next party you're at, you don't need to reveal all of who you are to everybody, right? I don't sit down at the next graduation party and sit down with a group of people and say, hey, by the way, let me tell you everything about me, all my dirty secrets, all of this stuff. No. Just like God, there are secret things that we keep and we reveal certain things to certain people. And then to complete strangers, of course, we may keep things a bit superficial. We must recognize that we are complex creatures. But what makes relationships so great is that complexity. Because all of the inner woven uh, fabric that comes from the human experience. You see, the Trinity rejoices in the idea of the complexity of their existence. It allows the complexity for us to understand who God is and what he's all about. So we need to use that complexity not to the Satan's advantage, but to our own. God has given us the ability to understand that there's a lot to who we are. And we must revere that instead of trying to hide it. Point number two. We were created for community. We were created for community. 
Once again, in verse 26, we see God say, let us, the plural there. God's having a conversation within uh, the Trinity. And within the first couple chapters of God creating things, after each of his creations, God announces to the other persons of the Trinity that everything is good until we get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And that's where we find out that God creates something that isn't good. Let's look at the text. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Here's what God says. Then the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And it says, Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought him to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave name to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the every beast of the field. But for Adam there was, no, was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And from that rib, the Lord God had taken from man he had made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. By the way, the Hebrew expression there is hot diggity dog, okay? If you were wondering what was being articulated there. So let's rewind for a minute. God has been creating over the first six days of creation. God is creating all of this wonderful stuff. And he says, that's good, that's good, that's good. He's created all manner of community. When he created the planets, he didn't create one, he created a whole, a whole myriad of planets. When he created the stars, a whole myriad of stars. When he created the angels, myriads upon myriads of angels had community with one another. When he created plant life, he didn't create one plant, he created all myriads and kinds of plants that could live in community with one another. When he created animal life, he creates not one animal, but a myriad of animals who can have community with one another. Then he creates man. And he creates Adam, and Adam is by himself. And he goes, and he begins to name the animals. God gives him that job, and he names the animals. And what Adam sees as he's naming all the animals is everybody has community. Even you, God, have community with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm by myself. I'm isolated. I have no one who is like me. So what does God do? God begins to create community for man. He says, I'm going to create woman. And what was the woman's job? To be a companion who would be one who would experience life together with the man. And as soon as he creates woman, he doesn't say, all right, I'm going to give you someone to hang out with. And you two just hang out together in this perpetual honeymoon. He says, listen, as soon as you guys start building community... I want you to do what? Be fruitful and multiply. Why? I want you to create more community amongst yourself. I want you to create more uh, people to interact with, sons and daughters that are going to come along, grandchildren, neighbors and friends, that this group of people that come from one couple would bring forth an ability for us to experience life together with. Now, why would God do that? Why would God command for community to be created? Because God understood that in his perfection, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he doesn't live in isolation, and neither should we. You see, when we think about the creation experience, we begin to think of a, a white-bearded God sitting on a celestial throne and all by himself creating. 
And during the six days of creation, just literally just kind of pointing at things, let there be and there was. Let there be and there was. Let there be and there was. And it was good, good, good. And he said, no, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I want to change your mindset of that. Because when we think about that, we get the one God down, but we don't get the Trinity down. I want you to think for a moment that you and I are over at uh, Indian Oaks Golf Course for a moment. I know some of you would like to be there right now. And we're on hole number seven, the par three. And we are getting set up to hit the par three. And we've got a chance. In a par three, you can always get a hole in one, right? And in the par three, you set up. You're all by yourself. And you hit the club. And my goodness, that's a great shot. It felt great off the tee. And look at it. It hits the green. Wait a minute. It's starting to roll to the hole. Man, I might get an eagle out of this thing. No. You hear the wonderful clunk, a hole in one. You throw the club, you start cheering and, and announcing to anybody who will listen, a hole in one, hole in one, but you begin to look around and there's nobody who's seen your shots. The devastation of having an experience where you have nobody to share it with. For many of us, we think that's how God created the world. That he had all these hole in ones and he's celebrating all by himself. Let me refresh your memory. God created the heavens and the earth, not by himself, but in unity in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know what creation was like? A bunch of hole-in-ones celebrating in a threesome. Sitting there, high-fiving one. Do you see what we created? Man, that's awesome. Look how beautiful that is. How great are we? How awesome are we? And that's what God has called us to. To live in community. Why? Because in the high points of life and the low points of life, God doesn't want you in isolation. That's what makes, listen, suicide such a terrible and ugly thing. It is the fullness and fruition of all kinds of isolation. God wants us in community to celebrate, to comfort one another. He wants us to have people in our lives we can live life together with. Yet, sadly, as Christians, far too many of us choose isolation over community. With the advent of the television, I like TV as much as the next person does, but with the advent of the television, I want you to recognize how the television changed culture. To experience life, we had to be there, right? Personally be there. If we wanted to see a ball game, we had to be there and experience what was going on. To be a part of any kind of festival or any kind of event, we had to be there. To experience live and in body what was going on. With the advent of the TV, we could experience a level of community while still in total isolation. We could watch people live life and never be a part of what was going on. And far too many of us, even as Christians, while God has committed himself to community, has said, I really don't need people. And, and if I do, I will, I will humor them. I will, uh, if you will, endure community until I can get back by myself. Instead of sharing about who I am and, and, and sharing uh, and, and being concerned about other people, I'm only worried about myself. Let me remind you that in the Genesis story, that the devil strikes the woman when she's by herself. Most theologians believe, had the first couple been together, the fall would have never taken place. You see, the devil finds ways to beat us up in isolation. 
I shared this with the elders not too long ago. I sin more when I'm by myself than when I'm together with other Christians. Is that true of you? That we find ourselves falling to the schemes of the devil when we're by ourselves because we are weaker alone than we are together. That's why the writer of Hebrews tells the people of God, do not forsake assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. Even in the time of Hebrews, people were choosing isolation over community. Now, if isolation was what God wanted, think about this for a moment. If isolation was what God wanted, he had the ability to give every one of the 7 billion people living on this earth their own planets. He could have given you your own planet, set you all by yourself, and said, hey, enjoy life. Endure the time of living all by yourself. But he didn't. He made one earth, and he put 7 billion people on it at a time. And because of that, we must recognize that God has called us to live in community with these individuals that we live life with. So what does that mean? Notice the third principle that I want you to see. As we look at the Trinity, not only do we see that we have great complexity and that we are called to live in community with one another, but we also have been given great relational capacity. Great relational capacity. Turn your Bibles to first, uh, I'm sorry, Psalms 139. Psalm 139. I'll give you a second to get there. Psalm 139 starting in verse 1. When we look at God, we see that God has given us an ability to know people. How do we know that to be true? Because God created us in his image and likeness. And this is what God says about how he knows us. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now we would say, wow, God knows a whole lot about David, right? He knows where David's going, when David's coming, when he's leaving. He knows his thoughts. He knows all these things. Well, we know that God doesn't just know David that way. He knows me that way. He knows my wife that way. He knows my kids that way. He knows the people at the Sugar Grove campus that way. He even knows the people at the Indian Creek campus that way. He knows you. And while we may not know all there is to know about all things... God has given us an ability to know just as in many ways he does. Scholars tell us that we have an ability to do two things with regards to knowing people. We have the ability to know lots of people, the breadth of people that we can know, and then the depth of people that we can know. Let's start with the breadth. How many people can we know? Scholars tell us that the average individual, you're going to be blown away by this, the average individual, you and I, know, on average, 5,000 unique people. 5,000. That's a lot of RAM up in your head. Now you'd say, there's no way I know that many people. Well, surely you do, through your work experiences, through the uh, relationships at church, through the relationships in the community. You stand in the, uh, the aisle at uh, Wisted's Market, and you'll say, I know you, and you can't figure out how you know them, but you know them. We know lots of people. 
And have you ever thought of the hundreds of people that you have opportunity to engage with on a daily basis? God has given you that ability, listen, not so that you can live life in isolation, but so that you can live life in community with them. He gave us a brain to know these people's names, to know facts about them, so that we can relate to them in unique and wonderful ways, not just simple and shallow ones. But also know God has created us not with the ability to also know lots of people, but also to know many people very deeply, very deeply. Like God who knows us intimately and is involved intimately in the lives of his people, in a smaller way, he's given us the ability to know people as well. Like I said, I've been married almost 20 years to Amanda, and there are things today that I'm still learning about her. At no point in our marriage have we said, you know what, I know everything about you. There's nothing to talk about anymore. I know everything you're going to say, everything you're going to do. I, I know things, and I'm learning things about her. There's recently, uh, Amanda went on the women's retreat, and people came back and said, you're not going to believe what your wife did. There was a limbo contest for all the ladies to be a part of, and Amanda's the limbo champion of the world. I had no idea. I had no idea. Things I didn't know about her. There are things she doesn't know about me. Well, I think I know my children. I recognize that my kids have a depth to them that I still haven't plumbed. There's a depth to people that God has given us the ability to be a part of. And yet, what do we do as Christians? We sit on the surface. How's the weather? How's the sports team? How's work? And anything deeper than that, we say that's off limits. God did not give us the ability to have depth of relationships so that we can have superficial relationships with one another. He gave us the depth of relationships so that we could speak to one another in all manners of life of depth and truth. We marvel at animals. We marvel at animals who are able to recognize their masters. We marvel at animals who can do a series of tasks that are on command by their master. But human beings, that pales in comparison to the relational depth that you and I can have. God has given it to us to use it. So how does that impact our lives? Husbands, wives, speak deeply into one another's lives. Reveal things, truths, fears, anxieties, worries, concerns, dreams, desires to one another. Don't live in isolation. Parents, spend time with your kids in deep relationships with one another. Pastors, pastor your people with a deep desire not just to know their name, but to know the comings and goings of that individual, their thoughts, their desires, their hopes, their dreams. God has given us relational capacity to know people, and God calls us to do that on an ongoing basis. That's why one of the most used words in all of the New Testament is the word brothers spoken of a Christian community. God wants us as a family. What do families know? Families know what's going on in the lives of each of its members. And that's what God has called us to as well. Well, let's finish. i got three more, and they'll be much shorter. As we look at the Trinity, we learn that we must delight, not disparage, our diversity. As we look to being created in the image of likeness of God, we recognize that God is one, but he is three distinct persons. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit's not the Father. They are three distinct individuals. They have different roles. They have different opportunities of ministry that one has over the other. 
Their roles are vastly different. The father is the one who providentially rules over creation. The son is the one who was sent to be born of flesh and to redeem humanity back to the father. The spirit is the one who baptizes and indwells every believer. And never once do you see one member of the Trinity yelling or screaming about the things that they don't get to do. Now, I don't mean to make fun of this, but never in the scriptures do we ever see that the son says the following. Why do I have to be the one who puts on flesh? Why do I have to be the one who gets ridiculed and spat upon? Why am I the person of the Godhead who has to go to the cross? I don't see the Spirit going to Golgotha. I don't see the Father going to the cross and dying a sinner's death. Nowhere do we see that. Nowhere do we see the Spirit say, hey, hey, wait a minute. I'm God, and I don't get much praise. The Son, he gets all the holidays, right? When was the last time you, you put up a tree for Pentecost? That we took some time and showed a video on Pentecost Sunday. Hey, this is the Spirit's holiday. But we celebrate the birth of Jesus, the, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. He gets all the praise. He gets all the accolades. And never do you hear the Spirit say, hey, what about me? What about my desires? What about my wants? He doesn't do that at all. In fact, they delight in one another. The father looks down to the son at the baptism of Jesus. And what does he say? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's my boy. The spirit says, hey, I don't speak on my own accord. But I only speak that which comes from the father and the son. What I'm told. You see, one of the reasons why we have such trouble in relationships is we see our diversity, whether with regards to gender or color, or ethnicity, or educational background, or occupational uh, position, we see our diversity as a negative instead of a positive. But I want you to notice this morning, the reason why we all look different, the reason why we all live life differently, the reason why we have different personalities, is because we are revealing a little bit more about God to one another. You see, I know how God reveals himself to me. But I recognize that God reveals himself to my wife in different ways. And when I recognize how God's revealing my, himself to my wife, and as she reveals to me those things, how God relates to her and, and how God has created her, then I know a little bit more about my God. Then I learn a little bit more about who he is. The Trinity reminds us that being different is something that God created on purpose. But sin says diversity is bad, something that's to be pointed out, something that is to be separated. But God has called us into a world where no other person is like you, and he did so on purpose. This means we've got to look at the world differently. And amidst that diversity, notice the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are different, but they're equal. That kicks out racism. That kicks out the idea that someone who has a bigger nameplate or a nicer office is somehow better than us. That says that, that men and women are created in the equal image and likeness of God and should be treated as such. We must not disparage diversity, but embrace it and delight as the Trinity does. Notice number five. No matter who we are, we must pursue humility. So now we've got the difference. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. While the, Spirit, while the, the Godhead is equal, there's a hierarchy to things. 
The Son submits to the Father and the Spirit to the Son. And within this hierarchy of equality, there's a submission which is done out of humility. First, the Son says the following, and John, write this passage down, John 6, 38. Jesus, the Son of God, says what is unfathomable from a God experience. He says the following, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. God says, I'm not going to do my own will, my own prerogative, but I'm going to do the will and I'm going to obey someone else, the Father in heaven. Notice in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Not my will, Father, but your will be done. And then, of course, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, we are told of the great humility of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, we're told the following. He says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what do we learn? We learn from the person, of, the second person of the Trinity, the person of Jesus Christ, that though he was God, he made himself low. And what that means for you and I in our relationships is if it was good enough for Jesus to make himself low, then husbands, maybe we should be thinking about how we can humble ourselves. Wives, how you can humble yourselves. Kids, how you can humble yourselves. Uh, employees or employers, how you can humble yourself so that relationships can be renewed and restored. I want you to recognize this morning the reason why Jesus humbled himself was so that you and I could be redeemed. If Jesus doesn't humble himself and come to earth in the form of man, then he would have never reconciled us back to God. I want you to recognize this. In fact, write this phrase down. Humility, humility is the vehicle of restored relationships. You've got relational strife in your marriage, you need to humble yourself. You need to get low. You have a problem with your son or daughter, you have a problem with your mom or dad, it's time for you to humble yourself. Because until we humble ourselves, uh, our relationships will never be restored. The reason why we have such strife in our relationships is because of pride. We want to do it our way, in our timing, instead of the timing and ways of God. This leads to, this humility, leads to what I call a striving for relational unity. Let's close with this. In John 17, 20, Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer on the night he's about to be arrested. And what he shares is something that I think as Christians we forget and miss out on. In verse 20, Jesus prays the following. I do not ask for these only. He's, he's already prayed for his apostles, the, the 11 at this point. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. We believe in the apostles' message. Verse 21. That they may all be one. What does oneness look like, Jesus? Notice what he says. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now let's stop there for a moment. What God has enabled us to do, Jesus prays for. Jesus says, I pray that they be one. Okay, 
We'll try to be one. No, Jesus goes one step farther. And he says, I want them to be one just as the Father and Son are one. In perfect unity. Now, scholars will say, well, what Jesus is praying could never happen, right? Because of sin, it could never take place. Well, then why in the world would Jesus pray something he knew wasn't going to take place? The second thing that we need to understand is, is he... Uh, minimizing this unity by being something small or limited. No, he says right away that this oneness would be like the Father and the Son have experienced imperfection. What I'm here to tell you is, is that when we humble ourselves, when we see diversity as a delight and not something to disparage, when we look at our, our uh, relationships as having great capacity for us to live community with one another and to see the complexity that God has created in us, when we humble ourselves in that way, God gives a man and a woman an opportunity to become like Christ in the church, one flesh. He allows families to draw close and to know one another and have a unity of spirit. He allows churches to come together and come from all different backgrounds and be one through the Spirit's work and through the Spirit's peace. If you're struggling with a relationship today, then we must ask the question, is it because God made it so? Well, we know that not to be true. God is experiencing real and true unity. And he's calling us to the same thing. Now, we have to live differently. And humility is the way that it begins. Unity with others begins, first of all, with our unity with our God in heaven. I can never be right with my wife or my kids. I can never be right with my fellow pastors. I can never be right with my neighbor if I'm not right with God. And so I have to stop and ask the question, what's keeping my relationship from being right with God? What things are in my life do I need to repent of? What things in my life do I need to confess? What things in my life do I need to get right so that when I relate with others, I relate as God has called me to? God has given you and I the ability to have great relationships. He's modeled it through the relationship he has with himself, the other persons of the Trinity. And he's calling us to do so. So let's look at our relationships and ask the question this morning, do they reflect God and how he relates to himself? Or do they reflect our sin and selfishness? You'll need to decide that. And you'll need to pray and ask God to work in that way. But let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the truth of what your word has to say. And Lord, as we've looked at, at who you are and tried to understand all that you say about how you relate to yourself and how you relate to the other persons of the Trinity, Lord, I pray that we might apply those truths to how we relate with one another. Lord, I pray, just like your son, that humility would be our our calling card. It would be the way that we uh, funnel all aspects and activities of life. Lord, I pray that we might have the unity that you your, and your son had, that we might be one as you are one. Lord, that, that the people of Shabana would see the oneness of, of this church, though different, though with different personalities and different backgrounds and maybe even different skin colors and, and, and occupations, that they may see as we relate to one another a oneness. Lord, you've created us for oneness, and it's a part of the human heart. And so, Lord, I pray that as they see that, they might see their void, their need, and that they may come asking, how is this oneness available to them and to the world? 
Thank you for sending your son Jesus to make that oneness a possibility. Thank you for giving us the oneness in our relationship with you by giving us your Holy Spirit to live and reside in us so that we may live in unity with our God who created us. Thank you for this time of singing and praying and opening your word, and we give you the glory for all of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.